0: Whatever happened to the power of God? We've been talking about this for several weeks now. What we're talking about is is that the God that we claim to worship seems to have disappeared. And we've been asking the questions, why? What happened to Him? What happened to His power? Did He somehow get dethroned? Did He somehow just disappear? Did He somehow just take the day off? What happened to Him and the power of God? When you read your Bible, you should be overwhelmed with the power and authority that God has on the earth. That He can just circumnavigate all the laws of physics, all the laws that, are, that keep our world in order, and He can just go around them and do whatever He wants. He can make the sun stand still. He can make an axe head float. He can make a donkey talk. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you say, well, yeah, they still do that. Just watch CNN or something like that. But that's different. You see, this is the God who created everything. Everything. And in everything created, had a plan. And we talked about last week, as we go through the Bible, we begin to see a, a picture of God become more and more clear. We talked about progressive revelation. And we talked about how the concept of how God was going to bring man back to himself became more and more clear the further through time that you got. We have the advantage of looking back. Hindsight, we've heard the term, hindsight is twenty twenty. right? It's like, boy, if I knew then what I know now. How many of you guys can think back to a time where Berkshire Hathaway wasn't really all that uh, that valuable? And think, boy, I'd have jumped in on some of that. How about Apple? All those things. Boy, if I knew then what I know now, things would be different, right? I'd go back in time and I'd fix it all. Did you guys ever see, I know most of you have because you're good American people. But Marty McFly. You guys know what I'm talking about? Back to the future. If you have not seen it, shame on you. Shame. Shame. I'll use what Jesus says. Woe to you who have not seen this movie. Okay. But then the one, the one uh, I think it was the second one, where he gets that sports book. And he tries to go back in time. And that way he, he can give it to his kids. And then Biff Tan and gets it and all of that. And it changes the whole, the whole scope of history. But he's like, man, if I could take this and have all this knowledge from the future and go back, how much easier would life be? If you knew the outcome of every decision you were ever going to make, wouldn't it be easier to make the right ones? You know? I mean, as an example, there's never been in the history of human beings, ever, mankind, however you want to say it, who is going to go up, and I'm going to nail this nail into the wall with the understanding that I am going to hit my thumb. If you knew that, you'd grab a screw. Right? You changed what you were going to do. And here's what's crazy about that. Is God knew what man was going to do. He knew that man was going to reject his word. And ultimately reject him. Before he created them. He knew. From the very beginning. It says that Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. Because the decision had already been made that, yes, I'm going to create man as a free will being, because if they don't have free will to choose to love me, then it's really not love. It's coercion. And if they don't have free will to love me, and then in that case reject me, then they're nothing but robots doing what I tell them to. But that's not the mankind that God created. He created free will beings that were able to go in there and make the choice, and made the wrong choice. And because of that, that God had to send His Son into the world to die a death for the penalty of sin. And we watched that picture unfold last week as we went throughout Scripture. And we watched that this revelation of how God was going to do it became more progressive and progressive and progressive to the point that we finally got the answer of what was going on. It starts in the garden where Adam and Eve sinned, and you see that the seed of the woman will defeat the seed of the serpent, being Satan. And then we see in the Passover that a lamb must be sacrificed. There's the shedding of blood. But this lamb had had to be spotless. In Isaiah 53, we see that this lamb isn't actually a lamb. It's actually a person. And then John the Baptist announces when he sees Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thus, bringing the fulfillment of that Mosaic covenant and bringing mankind to himself. And ultimately, we watch that lamb seated on the throne in the end of Revelation. From beginning to end, it was all part of the plan. But what does that have to do with us? You see, we do these things, and we look back at these things, and we say, okay, what has God done for me? We've read this, let's read it again, Psalm 77, starting in verse 10, it said, I said, this is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord, surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your works and talk of your deeds. You see, David's writing here saying, I will set up memorials to you, that when I see them, I will remember the goodness of God. We do that today. We've we've talked about that during Easter with the Passover lamb, the third cup of the supper. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. We call it communion today. That's not what they called it. They called it Passover. They called it part of the Seder meal. Every time you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Remembrance of what? Of the price that Jesus paid. You see, that's something we just seem to take for granted. We don't realize that the power in that was so great because it is the power to redeem mankind. For thousands of years, here you've got the Israelites that are taking part of the Seder meal. They do it every single year at Passover. They have no idea. They don't know what they're doing. They're just doing it out of ritual. They still do it today out of ritual. I talked to a Jewish missionary, Raleigh, who uh, uh, they do a Passover meal with his family because he is Jewish. So they, they, they do the whole thing. But they invited a Jewish person to come over and partake it with them. And they're sitting there like watching them do all the same thing that the Jews do, but it's got a different meaning. You see, for the Jewish person who's not a born-again believer, all this is heritage. This is what we do. We get up on the same time every year, and we go through this whole motion. We have this whole meal. It's a big party, and it goes into this week of unleavened bread, ultimately fulfilling with first fruits. But to Raleigh, this was all a picture of the Messiah. See, this is a memorial that he does with his family every single year. It's like, look what Jesus did for our people, for the nation of Israel. Look what He's done for mankind. It's a memorial to Him. We have memorials in our own life. We all have that one thing that belonged to Grandma that we got after she passed away that every time we see it, sometimes it's a plate or silverware, sometimes it's a picture. When we look at it, we remember something about the grandmother. I was telling uh, Diana the other day, you guys ever had Steakums? It's this frozen boxed meat thing. I'm not sure that it is meat. Okay. But it is frozen, and it is in a box, and it claims to be meat. My grandmother lived up in Detroit, and I would get to go see her on occasion when I was a kid. They'd fly me up there um, when I was pretty young. And every time I was there, this is the meal that she prepared for me. And I looked forward to it I, I, for whatever reason. It always meant something to me. I don't know if it was like something with Grandma. I don't know, because obviously I didn't get to see her very often because she was a long ways away. And so I'd been telling somebody this story that, about these Steakums. I hadn't had them since I was a kid. And in comes Diana into the office one day. She's like, I've had this box of Steakums in my freezer. I'm never going to eat these things. Would you eat them? I'm like, that's funny. I was just telling somebody the other day that I hadn't had these as a kid. And, you know, it's like I should buy some and see if I still like them. So she gives them to me. She's like, here, they're just going to go to waste on me. I like, beautiful. So I went home, and the next day for lunch, I went and I prepared those. And let me tell you something. They are not good. (laughs) They were awful. The whole day I felt terrible. Terrible. And I'm sitting here thinking, what on earth was it about these that I enjoyed as a kid? And the only thing I can figure is it was the one thing that my grandmother did every time I went up there. Because they were nasty. If I'd cooked the box, it would have tasted better. That's how bad these things were. So if you're at home thinking, oh, maybe we should try these. Don't. I'll save you the trip. If you need like meal that tastes terrible and stuff, I got all sorts of boxes around here. We'll just fry them babies up and send them home with you, okay? The bottom line is is there was something about it. But every time I saw them, I thought of my grandmother. I still remember how she prepared them. I remember that she set a timer in the microwave and she would turn her microwave on. It was one of the old school microwaves that had the big heavy glass in it and stuff like that. And that's how she knew how long to cook it. I also remember that she turned it on for too long, forgot to turn it off, and it smashed the glass that was inside of it. I remember all of those things. It's this nostalgic. It's this memory. So now when I walk through the freezer section at the grocery store, I see that thing, and I'm like, oh, those were so good. I remember loving them as a kid. Now that memory has changed. Never again. But the thing is, guys, is we do this in our life all the time. Jesus said, you need to do this for me. When the Israelites crossed over the Jordan, they set up a memorial. Every time something great happened, they set up a memorial. Here's the problem. We begin to worship the memorials, and not the God they represent. We read last week in Psalm 103. I love this psalm. We read the first five verses. I'm going to read the entirety of this psalm to you today. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. You guys, these are not just eloquent words. Think about that. Holy means set apart, greater than all. The things of the temple were holy because they were consecrated to the Lord. They belonged to Him. So His name is holy. We were singing about that today. His name is set apart above all things. All that is within me. Bless His holy name. We don't do that today. We do some that is within me. We are not dedicated to God like David was here. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits, for who forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercy, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Nor has he, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And it it Remember it. Ah, and its place remembers it no more but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all bless the Lord you his angels who excel in strength who do his word heeding the voice of his word bless the Lord all you his hosts you ministers of his who do his pleasure bless the Lord all his works and all of his dominion bless the Lord oh my soul can I get an amen you see he's worshipping God he's telling God you are so great and so mighty that you don't remember our transgressions as far as the east is from the west you forget them all You see, when you break down this chapter, it's divided into four sections. The first five is this outburst of praise for the blessing that God has granted for mankind. Forget not His benefits. The second is this enumeration of His loving kindness towards His body, the church as a whole, the entirety of it. The third is a representation of man's weakness and the dependence upon God. Because nothing that is within us can come to God because we are not worthy. Unless He calls us. You need to understand that. You see, if He is the King of kings, which He is, seated on His throne, you didn't walk freely into the throne room. You had to be invited in. But He says that we're worthy. He's opened up the door. He says you enter into the throne room of grace and you find mercy at your time of need. It's open to us. It's now changed. And the fourth thing is is that it's God's unchanging glory and call upon His creation to worship Him. For whose benefit do we worship God? It's not His. He's not sitting up there thinking, Boy, I just wish I could get a little affirmation from these people I created down there. Of course not. It's for our benefit. Because in a time of worship, heartfelt, spirit-led, true worship, for that moment, your attention goes off of yourself, and off of your problems, and off of your to-do list, and off of your family, and onto God. You see, these benefits that He's created for us are a result of His work and His character. And that is why we worship Him, is we worship Him because of who He is. When we come together as the body of Christ on a Sunday morning as an example, we're worshiping God in gratefulness for what He's done. So now let's let's look at these first five verses. We looked at this last week. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercy, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now. When we talk about benefits, benefits are not something that you earn. Benefits are a right that belong to you as a result of who you are, in, in, in our case, where we work. It's a benefit. You don't have to go in there and beg for it. It belongs to you as a result. The benefit of being my child in my home is that you don't have to beg me for food. You have a right to it. My neighbor comes over, they probably should ask. They can still have it. You have a right to my stuff. Now, you may not like that right, and you may think, well, those rights over there across the street are a lot better than the ones I got, and that may be true, but when it comes to the things of God, we don't have to beg for this stuff. This is a benefit based on His character. So what are they? Well, when we look at these, we see, first of all, that He forgives, right? We wrote these down last week. We're going to write them down again. Then we see that He heals. Then what do we see? He redeems. Right? Then what? He crowns. And then ultimately, he satisfies. What I'm going to tell you is that all of these benefits are not possible without these two. Forgiveness and redemption. We have a culture today that wants the benefits without starting at the beginning. We have a culture today that believes, yes, I am right for God. I, if I die today, I'm going to go to heaven. Why? Because I'm a good person. Because I was baptized. Because I went through confirmation. Because I go to church. Is that what God said? The answer is no. It starts with His divine forgiveness. And that's what we're going to focus on today. This forgiveness. Because if you don't get this Right here. You'll never get that one. You'll never get this one. You'll never get over there. And ultimately, you will never be satisfied. You will look for satisfaction in things that can never produce it. We will try to find it in stuff. We will try to find it in activities. We'll try to find it in people. You can never be satisfied without God in your life. And I'm not talking about a God that we just go to church on Sunday. If you came to this church today thinking I'm just going to put in my time and then I'll go about my week, you are in the wrong church because this is where the power of God is. Not this building, but this body. We serve a living God who intervenes on behalf of mankind. How do we know that? Well, he just told us there's a bunch of benefits there. If he didn't intervene on behalf of mankind, there is no forgiveness of sin because he sent his son into the world that we screwed up to die that death, to pay the penalty of sin. That way sin could no longer just be simply covered, but could be removed. And that He resurrected on the third day. And according to Peter, it's because of that that our faith and hope can be in God. That means if He didn't resurrect, our faith and hope couldn't be in the promise of God because it would be a promise that we're based on what? Not on action, but on words. You see, God's words and God's actions always are the same. If He says He'll do it, he will do it. So we want some of this other stuff, but we don't want to start here. The problem we have today is we have a form of godliness, but we have denied His power. We come near to Him with our lips, but our heart is far from Him. This is the condition of mankind. It's all throughout Scripture. Yeah, we'll go and we'll put in our time. We'll do our thing. We'll take communion. We'll say a Hail Mary. We'll do whatever we got to do. But our heart, you don't get My heart. My heart doesn't belong to God because he might put a demand on me of something that I really don't want to do. He might expect something from my life that I don't want to do. He may want me to go over here to the east, but I want to go to the west. He may want me to take this job, but I want to go take that job. He may want me to live a certain way, but I don't want to live that way. I want to live my way. You see, that's the problem we have is we want to take God and say, God, God, I want just enough of you to make my life satisfied. But we don't want to do it His way. So when we look at forgiveness, what is forgiveness and why do we need it? Well, we know this. According to Scripture, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? No question about it. How is that possible? I'm a good person. I've done good things. The problem is, is the standard of goodness that we have. If I compare myself to you, you might be better than me. You might do more things than I do. But the last time I checked is you were not the standard. And neither am I. But God is the standard of goodness. And if God is the standard of goodness, who measures up to that? Nobody. You can't. It's impossible. Who can? Well, God Himself. You see, that standard of goodness came into the earth and paid the punishment for sin that we might be forgiven. That whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but through Him it might be saved. It's not a guarantee. Why? Because so many people are going to reject Him. There's going to be a lot of people that when Jesus returns, they say, Lord, I did this in Your name and I prophesied in Your name and I, 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 I prayed for these people and I gave in Your name. And He's going to say, get away from me. I never knew you. It's the knowing Him. Not knowing about Him. It's the knowing Him. You see, when one of us sins, which we all have, We righteously deserve whatever punishment is associated with that. What is the punishment for sin? Death. Because of sin, death entered into the world. But Jesus has come to give us life, and life more abundantly. The thing is, is when we look at this in Psalm 103, when it says that He forgives all our iniquities. That's not some. That's all. If we jump down to verse 10, look what it says. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgression from us. You see what He said here, and remember, this is before Jesus has come onto the earth. Is that He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Nor has He punished us according to our iniquities. How has He dealt with us? How has God dealt with mankind today? You've either accepted His free gift, or you have not. There is no in-between. You either accept it or you don't. Because He's going to deal with people according to their sins. If we receive the gift from God that Jesus has taken that punishment for sin, taken death for us, then it's already been dealt with. Or we can try to go it alone. The choice is ours because we have free will. We can make that choice. So he's not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. But look what it says next. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. How high is the heavens above the earth? I don't know. I don't have a tape measure big enough. The bottom line is, is that His mercy is so great that it's innumerable. As far as the east is from the west, He has removed His, our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? Don't think in a circular pattern. Don't think if I, if I head to the east and I just keep walking around the world, I'm eventually going to get there. Don't get your Fitbit on to see how many steps it takes to get there. doesn't matter. It's a linear pattern. How far? You can never measure up how far God has removed the sins from those who believe in Him. Now there's two words here that are, that are important. you got iniquity and you got transgressions. What, what are those? Those are not words that we use very often. Iniquity is an inward motivation that will drive us towards sin. But the transgression is the outward movement. The stepping over of the boundary. Iniquity is the heart of it, but transgression is the hand of it. Iniquity is the attitude behind it, transgression is the action. You've got your inside motivation versus your outside motivation. When Jesus is standing there with the, uh, oh, with the Pharisees and all of them, and He says, listen, the law says that you should not commit adultery, but I tell you that if you've looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. What's he talking about? You see, the Pharisees have set up this system and this ideology that as long as you didn't actually act upon something, you're good. But Jesus is showing them that your heart is far from God. You come near me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. The hand of action is part of it. So you've got the inward sin and you've got the outward sin. Iniquity, transgression. It's very easy to do. Iniquity, which it's a Hebrew translation which means inequity, which means we are not equal with God's holiness. Inequity. Anything that does not equal God's holiness is iniquity. There's a verse that really explains this really well. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. A wound Is an outward injury, but a bruise is inward bleeding. He took care of both. He's removed our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. It's infinitely. We think about God, and this is how we act, because this is what we do with our kids, and this is what we do with our spouse. If you're married, you will understand this. You remember that one time 15 years ago where you said or did something stupid? No, men, you probably don't remember that, but you know who does? Your wife, and you know that little nugget's coming out at any opportune time. If you're not married yet, just go ahead and prepare yourself. It's going to happen. I promise you. We think of God in the same way. We think God's got this great big filing cabinet. The second we screw up, he's going through there. He's like, oh, okay. Oh, yeah, you remember this one time you did this. If he's removed it, not only is the file gone, so is the filing cabinet. We remember all the things because actions and words don't align on this world. We we say one thing and we do another. But when God says something, His actions are always matching up with that. See, sin must be completely removed for God to have a relationship with us. That is the whole point of the temple and the tabernacle. We've been talking about this on Wednesday night specifically, but we talked about it with um, Passover a little bit is that you had this structure in the tabernacle. And you had this outer place where the priests would go and they would do the sacrificing and the washing and all of that. And then you would go into the holy place where they would go in and they had the table of showbread and the menorah and the altar of incense, and they would continually have to do different things and take care of this kind of stuff. And it was all on behalf of the Israelites. They'd have to bring the sacrifice in, they'd put their hands upon it, the priest would kill it, they would burn it, or whatever they would do, and they would deal with it all that way. But there was one place that only one man could go one day a year, and that is into the Holy of Holies. That the high priest, who was of the line of errands, who was a very strict regimented amount of rules before you could even be qualified as such, On the Day of Atonement, he would go in there and he would first have to sacrifice for himself and make appeasement to God and atonement for his own sins and things he's done. And once he's gone through all of that, now he has to do it on behalf of Israel. And he would go in there and he would enter into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was. Inside that place is the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat and what they call the Shekinah Glory, which is the presence of God. It is the throne room of God Himself. He was separated from man. This veil, this curtain, was the size of a man's hand. Four or five inches thick. It was not a thin little piece of of, uh, flannel hanging down. It was thick. And he would enter into this place and he would atone for the nation of Israel. Thus making them for one more year good to go. And the second he would leave, they would screw up. If he didn't follow everything right, he would die because sin cannot be in the presence of God. And all of this was just a picture of what Jesus was going to do ultimately for us. But here's the thing. Is that in this process, we see how serious God took sin. These guys, You had a whole tribe of people whose entire existence revolved around that tabernacle and that service. Twelve hours a day, they'd go in there. Day and night. Constantly. From age 20 to age 55. That's all they did. Is they would constantly go in there. Make these sacrifices. Can you imagine the blood? Could you imagine the smell? You've got an entire nation of people that are coming to one place to sacrifice. But Jesus sent His Son into the world. Once for all. The perfect offerer as in the high priest, and the perfect offering as in the Lamb of God, and now has atoned these sins. See, He's removed them from us. Do you notice that there's no longer a need for sacrifice? Why? The sacrifice has been made. It's already been made. That is why Jesus said that this cup is the new covenant in My blood. As often as you drink this, do it in remembrance of Me. It's to remember what He's done. Those words were not lost on the Jews because every year and every day they were taking sacrifices in. And suddenly, that's now gone. So for whose benefits? What do we see here? Well, it's not simply that sin is gone. as He doesn't remember them. In Isaiah 43, verse 25, it says, I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Now, look what he says there. First of all, he says, I will not remember. Does that make it like he forgot? No. He's chosen to not remember. Guys, don't you wish your wife would choose not to remember some of them dumb things that you said? Remember that one time she brought that new outfit, and you're like, oh, you're going to wear that? Doesn't go well, does it? Did you ever answer the question, does this dress make me look fat? Because if you did, shame on you. There's no winning in that. He chooses not. Think about that. Here is the Creator of all things who has a righteous duty to bring justice to the earth. And when we receive the gift of Christ, He chooses not to remember. He doesn't lord it over you. Look at Hebrews 8. It says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. He's chosen not to remember. But there's one part in this that is key. In Isaiah 43.25, it says that it's for my own sake. It's really not for you. It is for Him. Because... He created mankind for fellowship, to express love to. And since that whole plan came together, He's been wanting to bring mankind back to Himself. You see, this isn't just a benefit for you, although it is very much so. He's done this for His sake. When you think about the word remember, that I will remember no more, it means to recall or bring something up for you. So you think about if you've ever sat there in a test, you're getting ready to take a test, you're praying, God, please let me remember all the stuff that I just read, that I studied. That God has chosen to not bring up our past against us by, any, by an act of His own will. I choose not to do this because this has been paid for. And this is important to understand. If the punishment for sin has been paid and forgiveness has been enacted, what's the point of bringing it back up? It's already been settled. If you go to the bank and you borrow money for a car and you pay it off, they quit mailing you a letter every month reminding you to make the payment. Why? It's been settled. It's been taken care of. There's no longer a reason to bring it up again. Who brings up our past? It's not God. It's the enemy. He's the one that says, well, you know what? Uh, uh, You did this or you said that. or How could you even think that you're a godly person based off of your past? Look at Paul. Paul says that I am the least worthy of all the apostles because of what I did as he was going out trying to kill members of the church before he had an encounter with Christ. When I do marriage counseling, I have to tell people, it's like, stop bringing up the past. If you truly moved on from it, then move on from it. Because bad things happen and people make stupid decisions. And the response is, well, I'm not God. I can't forget God never said He forgot. He says that I choose not to remember. One of God's attributes is that He is omniscient. Omni meaning all, science meaning knowledge. He is all knowing. If He's forgotten your sins, He's forgotten better than 50% of your life at least. But it's not that He forgot. He chooses not to remember. You got the difference between man and woman, right? The memory of a man... Guys, what did you have for lunch yesterday? No idea. Woman, 23 years ago on your wedding day, what color flowers did you have? They'll tell you every detail about it. Ask the guy the same question. They don't even remember what day it was. They just know that they showed up. So, there's a difference here. Male and female both come from God. The female part has all knowledge. The male part has chosen to forget. Not really, that's bad theology, but... You see, we have a God who has chosen not to remember. The reason He's chosen is because it has been paid for. The other part is, in verse 3, is that He has released us from our iniquity. That word, forgive. It means the release of. It's it's a word that's used of a forgiveness of a debt. It's been settled, but who paid it? Wouldn't you love it when you go and get you a car note? And then like a few months later, you get the title in the mail because it said, this has been paid for in full, and you didn't do it? Wouldn't that be awesome? I I say this half-jokingly, but I had an aunt who was up in, in Detroit, worked for a credit card calling company. You'd call in for service and stuff. She said, you would be amazed at the amount of people calling in madder than a hornet because they didn't realize they had to pay that back. I don't know. The reason it's gone and can't be brought back up is because somebody's paid for it. It's been paid for. God took what we owed, and His Son paid for it. We can't be charged twice. We can't. Our debt has been take, taken care of. Iniquity is an inward bent towards sin. It's been released. What gives me the authority to say that it's been released? John 20, verse 23. It says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now this verse is very confusing. It's shrouded in controversy among scholars. Some scholars say this is referring to the disciples. Others say this is referring to the priesthood, that you confess sins to one another. You, you come in that the priest has the ability to forgive sins. But... You got to take the scripture in context of the entirety of the Bible. This is inside the 40 days after Jesus was risen. It's right after the Emmaus road, that seven-mile uh, trip that he's given this Bible study. He said starting with the law and the prophets, he he had revealed himself to them. That there are 11 here because Judas are dead and they're locked in a room because they're afraid of the Jews, because they're coming after them. Jesus appears right in front of them. It makes it seem as if he just walked through the wall, maybe did, maybe didn't, I don't know, but he's commissioning his apostles and he says that if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. How is this possible? Do you have the power to forgive sins? Do I have the power to forgive sins? The answer is no. Neither one of us do. So how can he say this? Remember, when Jesus was dealing with the Pharisees and the Pharisees got in an uproar and he says that the sins are forgiven and they're freaking out saying only God can forgive sins. He said, well, which is easier, say this man, get up and walk or that your sins are forgiven? They didn't have a good answer for either one. If only God can forgive sins, then why is He giving the authority of the disciples to forgive sins? He's not. He's giving the authority of the disciples to let them know that their sins have been paid for. And they can be forgiven. In other words, if you come to me, and you say that I've given my heart to Christ, I can tell you that your sins are no more. I'm not forgiving them. I am simply telling you that. It's the ministry of reconciliation. Tell people they can be forgiven. If they believe the gospel, then they are released. They are forgiven. If they don't believe the gospel, then their sins are retained. He forgives all our iniquity, and that is one of the divine benefits of God, is forgiveness. It's not blindly forgetting about the mistakes of the past. He's choosing not to remember. Jesus made a choice to lay down His life for our benefit, and He chooses to remember no more. We have to follow this pattern in our lives, forgiving one another, and forgiving ourselves, and moving on from what is going on and what has been of the past and the things that we have done. We've got to press into the greater things of God, walking fullness and understanding that we have been forgiven. So bring up my past. It doesn't matter. It's been settled in full. How can I say this? How can Jesus say this? Well, this is it. And Deanna talked about this this morning. In John chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus is on the cross. And it says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. What is going on? What's happening here? Jesus knew that all things were now accomplished. What things? The fulfillment of the Old Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant. They've all now been fulfilled. But when he got done, he says in the Greek, Tetelestai. I've got that definition up here. Look at this. It means to complete, to finish, the accomplishment. It's gone through, is paid, it's performed, it's made perfect. Tetelestai. It is now finished. What is it? In Jeremiah 31, we see that I will bring a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the one when I led their fathers out of the nation of Egypt. But now this new covenant. You see, the old one is finished. The old one where you constantly had to bring sacrifices. Where you could have no fellowship with God. That one time a year, did one person get to enter into the presence of God. And that was it. But now that system is done away with. Now it has changed. It is finished. It is complete. It has been paid in full. And now what? We are boldly into the throne room of grace. and We find mercy when we need it. You see, in Colossians chapter 2, there's a verse that is completely misunderstood. It says, verse 11, In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. What is circumcision? It was a sign of the covenant, of the Mosaic covenant, of the Abrahamic covenant, it was aligning yourself with God. That was one of the ways that done. Uh, this was done, but he said you were made with uh, circumcision, made without hands, by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So he's making an analogy, a comparison here. You were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive. To together with him having forgiven all your trespasses having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us which was contrary to us and he has taken it out of the way having it nailed to the cross having disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it and what's often said is Jesus came and when he died on that cross he took that law that mosaic law and he nailed it to the cross and he removed it from us but that's not what that says You see, Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill the law. And we see Him when He says, to tell us that it is finished. It means it's paid in full. What is this talking about? You see, putting off the body of sins in the flesh, we come into the circumcision of Christ. Our heart belongs with Him. That we're buried with Him in baptism. It's a sign. That's the sign of the new covenant. Just like circumcision was a sign of the old covenant, the baptism, water baptism is a sign of the new covenant that we're buried with Him and that we come out alive, raised with Him. This new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. How is this done? Through faith in the working of God. You being dead in your trespasses, in your sin, in your iniquities, all the things that you've done, you were dead spiritually. And the uncircumcision of your flesh, the separation of you and God, He has made us alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Does that say some? It says all. That means there is nothing that can separate us from God for those who come to Him through faith in Christ. You guys with me so far? Here's the confusion part. Having wiped out, The handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What is it? It's the handwriting of requirements. What is this? When you go to the bank and you get a car loan or you get a mortgage or whatever, you get something called a deed of trust. That deed of trust is saying that I owe Mr. Banker X amount of dollars and I will pay this off in a certain amount of time. And then at the fulfillment of that, you'll get a note, or depending on where you are, it says a different thing. Then it'll say something to the fact, paid in full, lien released, whatever. Whatever you want to say. The handwriting requirements is the very same thing. In the ancient world, at this time, there was two different things that were going on. One, you could become an indentured servitude. You borrow money from somebody, they'd give you this lien paper, and it was saying that I owe somebody X amount of dollars, and I agree to pay them off. If you didn't pay them off, you could be punished or imprisoned. And that when you did pay them off, they would write on a piece of paper, to die paid in full. The same thing is, is that if you had committed some sort of a crime, you would have a piece of paper, you were, you were uh, gone to the judge, the judge sentenced you to X amount of time in prison. And he would give you a handwriting piece of paper saying that you owe so much time in jail, whatever the punishment was. At the end of your sentence, when you have completed it, they would write on it to telesty, because you would keep that with you, and if anybody ever tried to bring up the fact that you should have been in prison or that you owe somebody such and such money, you pull that out and you show them, no, it's been paid in full. It was your proof that the debt has been paid. Either your debt to society or your debt to the individual. What Jesus nailed to the cross was the debt that we owed to God Himself. Because He paid it in full. And then He takes it a step further. He disarmed the principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Remember what it says. that In Scripture, it talks about how Satan used death to keep man fearful. But Jesus conquered death. Therefore we have no reason to fear. Paul says that to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you are a child of God, truly born again, death is a wonderful thing. Right? No more of this crazy stuff going on. We're now in the presence of God. To live is Christ, to die is gain. But here... It says that He disarmed the principalities and powers and He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. What is it? The handwriting requirements. When He paid that in full, He conquered the kingdom of hell, if you will. Forgive the analogy, but that's not really what it is, but that's how we would understand it. And what would happen is when you conquered a kingdom, you would parade that king and all of his servants through there showing that you now have authority over that land. Jesus disarmed them the principalities and the power and he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over. How did he do that when he raised from the dead? And here we got without any of this we have no forgiveness of sin. That's really the point today guys is that this forgiveness while it may be free was not cheap. And we take it for granted. We live in a society today where the fear of God is no longer in existence. We live in a society today where the disciplines of the spiritual life are no longer in existence. We do what we want. We want to feel good. Our goal in life is to seek happiness. The, as an example, there was a time in life where a husband and a wife could no longer get together. They just couldn't get along. They wanted a divorce. But for the sake of the children, they would stay together often for the sake of the children because they were putting the needs of the kids above their own. Now, stuff happens sometimes. But in our society today, what do we do? You need to be happy. You just need to do whatever makes you happy. If we take that to the nth degree, you know what makes some people happy? You ever seen My 600-Pound Life? Anybody ever watch that show? It's a story about people who weigh 600-plus pounds and they can't move and they're trying to get surgery. It's a story about what's going on with them. I watch it while eating ice cream. I just feel that's appropriate. But what makes them happy is seeking to destroy their life because they are going to die. You see, we never tell our children to just seek what makes them happy. You know what makes my son happy? Hitting his sister. You know what makes her happy? Pushing him down the stairs. We're not after their happiness. We're after their well-being. But the society we live in today is, yeah, I I can do some church or I can do some of that, but I don't want to be committed. I I don't want all of God. I just want to come near to Him when I want Him. I want to take God and I want to make Him fit into my life. And you think about all that God went through to make it possible that you and I could enter into that throne room. That every time we take communion, that we remember that. That every time we come together as a memorial to Him, we worship God together as the body of Christ. And we just take it for granted. We're no longer a society that fears God and loves Him and want to serve Him with all of our heart. We are now a society that want to fit God into this box. That when we have some time, that maybe we'll bring Him into a part of our lives. If we don't understand forgiveness and how important this is, we can never get to the rest of this stuff. And the greater things of God, the things that He has done for us, we can't. Because if we never walk around knowing that our sins have been forgiven... And we will walk around as defeated individuals the rest of our lives. It's so crucial that we catch this part. And as we go forward, we've got to understand that. That what happened to the power of God? Nothing. The power of God is still at work today. We're what's changed.